As you're grabbing your seat, let me encourage you to grab your Bibles and to turn them open to John chapter 15. All summer long, we've just been taking a little stroll through John 15 together, focusing on the, the essence of the Christian life. And we've been learning that the Christian life isn't so much about you and I learning how to live for Christ in the world, but better yet, the Christian life is about you and I learning how to live in Christ for the sake of the world. So we want to live in Christ for the world's sake. We want to bear fruit to God's glory. We want to bear fruit that would contribute to the flourishing and the nourishment and the blessing of the world around us. And so John chapter 15, we've just been walking through this uh, portion of scripture slowly all summer long, and we're going to just going to grab one verse tonight, and it may be my favorite verse in the entire chapter. It was very good for my soul to just kind of meditate upon the grace of this one verse over the course of this past weekend. Uh, this past summer, many of you know, has been, uh, it just seems to be just a steady stream of, of various stressors and stresses in, in my life and in my family's life and this, that, and the other, everything ranging from, uh, you know, our house being robbed to uh, identity theft to permits being slowed down and work on the house that we're trying to get done, not being able to get done, which is leaving us in just this unsettled season, which isn't a lot of fun. And and then uh, a car wreck about a week and a half ago, you know, all these things, it's kind of strung back to back to back to back, and, and it's contributed to um, a life this summer that I feel has been more frustrated than fruitful, uh, that I've been more frustrated than fruitful. And, and so meditating upon the grace of this verse has been very good for my soul, and I hope and I pray that it would be good for your soul, because I know that I'm not unique in hitting stretches and hitting seasons where we're stressed and where we're frustrated and where fruit seems to be slow and all those types of things. And so my prayer for each and every one of us is that as you meditate upon this verse with me tonight, that your heart would be uplifted and that your soul would be uh, fed and encouraged with it. Because we're told right off the bat, we're reminded of this encouraging call, this encouraging choice that Jesus has made in our lives. If you look at verse 16, the very first phrase in this Verse, Jesus says to his disciples, and by extension, he says to you and I, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Now, that's a powerful phrase. It's an encouraging phrase if we think about it really, really well. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Now, what this language does is it kind of pulls us in towards the doctrine of, what the, of what's known as the doctrine of election. And the language of election is something that is littered all throughout the scriptures. And one of our core values as a faith family is called biblical fidelity, which means we want to be found faithful to the scriptures. We believe the Bible is God's word written. Therefore, we study it and we restudy it. We examine and we reexamine the scriptures to hear what the Bible has to say about everything that it speaks on. And the Bible has a lot to say about this idea of election, of God's grace, of God's choosing, calling, those types of things. And and the Bible uses this language for a variety of ways, and as this language kind of speaks to a variety of things. One of the reasons why this type of language is found in Scripture, one of the reasons why the doctrine of election should encourage our souls is that it's designed to solicit our worship. It's the type of language that should remind us of the grace of God. When Jesus says, look, you didn't choose me, I chose you. It's not that you wanted me, it's that I wanted you. That, that's grace, right? And that type of language, that reality should solicit our worship. It should stir our affections to know that God actually wanted us. 
We found this out in Ephesians chapter one, verses four through six. We studied the book of Ephesians earlier this year, but there's a passage there that really lays this out. Ephesians chapter one, verse, beginning of verse four. Listen to what it says. It says, for he, that is God, chose us in him, that is Christ, before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved. You can just hear the language that echoes John 15, where, for he chose us in him, and he lavished all of this on us in the beloved. It's the same language that's found in John 15 when we learn about abiding in Christ and Christ abiding in us. This union that we have with Christ by faith. And this whole dynamic, we're told, came because God chose us in him. In other words, God set his affections upon us before the world was even created. Before you and I were even blips on our mom and dad's radar screen, he had set his affections upon us and he determined to love us. So he chose us in Christ. And so the language of election, what that does is that should stir our hearts with wonder. It should stir our hearts with worship. Now the doctrine of election is, is the type of doctrine in scripture that if you were to go swimming in the ocean, you know your feet are never gonna touch the bottom. Well, the doctrine of election is a, lot, is a lot like that. It is a deep doctrine. It is a deep reality. And you want to swim in it. You want to be encouraged by it. But you also need to understand that your feet are never going to touch the bottom. You're never going to fully grasp the reality of what it means to be chosen and called and elected by God all according to his grace. Because if he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that means that he chose us in Jesus before you ever made any decision before you did anything right or before you did anything wrong, therefore you can't appeal to your rightness and you can't appeal to your wrongness as accounting for your relationship with God. The only thing you can point to in the equation is his grace, is this pre, this choosing effect, this affection, this love that he set upon us before the foundation of the world. That type of wonder should stir our hearts to worship. But the language of election does more, especially when you come to John 15. The language of election here is being used in a different, in a, in a more nuanced kind of way. When Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, you did not choose me, I chose you. He says it this way to his disciples at this time because this language is, a, is designed to assure us of our status. It's designed to assure us of the status we have with God through Jesus. Now here's what I mean by that. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. What if he would have said, I did not choose you, but you chose me? What if he would have said it differently? What if he would have said, I did not choose you, but you chose me? What do you think that would have done to the disciples' assurance in that moment? Where would the weight fall in the relationship? If he would have said, no, I, I didn't choose you, you chose me, you wanted to run with me, things are about to get really bad for me, I'm going to go to the cross here in a few moments, and, but, but you chose me, so I mean, it's on you for this. The weight of the relationship would have fall, fallen on the shoulders of the disciples had he said, I did not choose you, you chose me. So when Jesus looks at the disciples and he says, no, you did not choose me, but I chose you, he's saying, I want you to know that the weight of the responsibility for our relationship is falling on me. I'm taking responsibility for you. I chose you. I've got you. 
That means everything that's about to go down, whenever I am crucified and all of you begin to scatter and Peter, you're gonna deny me three times, I still got you because I chose you. He says a very similar thing in John chapter 10, verse 28, when he says, I, gave, I give you eternal life. I give them, that is his disciples, eternal life, and they will, never, they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hands. So this language is designed to assure us of our status. It's designed to remind us that Jesus has got us. And so the weight of the relationship falls upon Jesus' shoulders. It doesn't necessarily fall upon ours, or to put it another way. Your relationship with God isn't dependent upon how strong you exercise faith in Jesus. It's not dependent upon the strength of your grip on God. Your relationship with God is dependent upon the grip of his grace, the grip of his grace that he has grabbed you with. And so Jesus says, I've got you. Nobody's gonna take you out of my hands. He says, you didn't choose me. I chose you. I wanted you. And I've got you. There's an assuring word in that. I've shared this story with some of you before, but when I was in, uh, there was a senior in high school who, uh, a friend of mine who discovered when she was a senior that she was adopted. In this bizarre freak research moment on the computer, she learned that she was adopted into her family and that she wasn't, she, which her parents had not told her before then. And so when she discovered this, she talks about how the room just started spinning and everything just kind of zooming in and out of focus. She got tunnel vision. She felt like her reality was just coming unraveled. And she began to question everything that she has been living her life for up to that moment. What is real? What is true? Is it, what am I going to do in the midst of this? You can imagine the existential crisis that was caused when she discovered that. And so she came to me seeking some type of help, just wanting a friend in that moment. And, and she said, Andrew, this is what happened. I've learned that I'm adopted. And, and to be honest with you, I don't, I don't know what's real anymore. I don't know what's true anymore. She said, I've been a Christian most of my life, but right now I just feel like I'm barely hanging on to God's shirt sleeve. She said, I just feel like I'm about to lose my grip. And in that moment, the only thing I could think to say other than just listening to her vent and encouraging her with, with my love for her and my care for her, she, I then encouraged her to say, well, what if, what if through this entire situation, you come to the realization that maybe your relationship with God and maybe all of reality isn't so much dependent upon your grip on God, but maybe it's more dependent upon God's grip on you. Maybe it's dependent on the fact that God's got you even though everything else is falling apart. Reality, as you know, it seems to be unraveling, but it seems to me that God's gonna hold on to you. Because the goal and the purpose of the Christian life isn't so much about you and I trying to hold on to God. It's about you and I recognizing that God's holding on to us. This is what being saved by grace is all about. This is what trusting in the Savior's work for us is all about. And so our faith may shift. Our faith may fluctuate. But God's grace is rock solid. God's grace is steady. Jesus says, you did not choose me. I chose you and I'm going to keep you. And so this language is designed to assure us of our status, to help us, to help hold us together even when we feel like we're falling apart. And the disciples would need to know this because in a minute or in a few days, life is going to get really hard for them. The Jesus that they've given their life to is about to be arrested and is going to be tried, is going to be crucified. Then soon after that, people are going to come looking for the disciples who are going to go into hiding. 
I mean, things are going to go sideways really quick. And so they need to know when they step in that direction that Jesus' promises to them are still going to be carried forward. They need to know that, that God is not going to forsake them when everything else seems to get shaken up in their lives in the very next few, or in a very short amount of time from that moment forward. And so let me ask you, as you think about your relationship with God, whose grip are you relying on? Are you more dependent, are you more concerned with the strength of your grip on God or do you consider God's grip on you? Is Christianity more about your faith or is it more about God's grace? Now certainly you have faith, certainly you trust, certainly you believe, but you don't put your faith in your faith. You don't put your trust in your trust. You don't hold on to God as much as God holds on to you. You put your faith in God's grace. You put your trust in the fact that God said, Jesus says to all of his disciples, you didn't choose me, I chose you. Therefore, I want you. You can be assured of that. And I've got you. But then there's another dynamic to the language of election in this text that not only is it, is it designed to stir us up in worship, it's designed to assure us of our status this language is designed to provide purpose to our lives. It provides purpose to our lives. You see, all throughout Scripture, the language of election is always, is always stitched to the language of mission. That the language of election always comes with responsibility or it comes with privileges. It comes with opportunities to serve. Think about it this way. When God called Abraham, why did he call Abraham? Did he just want Abraham to be with him? No, he said, Abraham, I'm gonna bless you but not just for your sake. I'm gonna bless you for the sake of everyone else. I wanna bless you so that you can in turn around and bless the nations. Same thing with the people of Israel. Why did God choose Israel? He chose Israel declaring that they would be a light to the nations. That the revelation, the promises, everything that God was going to do to recreate reality, he was given to the people of Israel who were in turn to relay it to all the nations around them. So their election was attached to mission, right? Then you get into the New Testament. Why did Jesus call his disciples? Why does he say, you did not choose me, but I chose you? What's the purpose in it? Well, he moves on and he says this. He says, I'm doing all this to, because I appointed you to go and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain. In other words, I'm not electing you, so to speak. I'm not choosing you to the, to the exclusion of everyone else around you. I'm electing you, I'm choosing you for the sake of everyone around you because there are more people in the world who do not yet know that they are wanted by God. They do not yet know that the Savior lived and died and rose again for them and who's gonna relay that reality? Who's gonna communicate that truth? Well, it's gonna be those who recognize that they've been given an enduring purpose, that the goal, their election is always stitched to their mission. Knowing Christ always leads to making Christ known. And this is what Jesus is communicating. He's saying, I, I've appointed you to go and to produce fruit and that your fruit should remain. Now, fruit, we've been talking about fruit in a couple of ways all summer long. We've been saying that fruit involves, on one hand, the fruit of gospel character. It is the transformation that is real, that is significant, that is substantial that Jesus is producing in our lives. We may describe it as the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, long-suffering, self-control, all of that is blooming and blossoming in our lives as we abide in Christ, as we obey Christ, as we walk with Christ. But then at the same time, we've also said that, that fruit concerns gospel influence, 
That is your ability to influence others with the realities of Jesus. As you, to put it another way, make disciples. As you introduce more people to Jesus, the fruit of gospel influence is another dynamic to what Jesus is talking about in John 15. But by the time you get to verse 16, it seems that Jesus is really squaring up on, that, on the influence piece. The fruit in verse 16 seems to be new disciples. It seems to be other people whom you are going to introduce to Jesus and whom you are going to disciple in the faith. I say this because in John chapter 17, verse 20, Jesus takes some time to pray about his life and his mission. He begins to pray for his disciples. And in John chapter 17, verse 20, listen to what he says. He says, I pray not only for these, that is his immediate disciples, but also for those who believe in me through their word. He's saying there's going to be more people who come to believe in me because of my disciples' testimony. And he's by extension, we can say that there are more people who are going to come to believe the gospel because of your testimony, because of your cooperation and involvement and participation with the mission of God. And this is where I really want to encourage you and I really want to dismantle some, some perhaps poor thinking about mission in the life of the church. Sometimes we think that mission is what professional pastors or staff members of a church, it's what they do. Or if they're not on staff at a church or serving as a pastor in a church, then they're involved in some kind of nonprofit. And the nonprofit that may be serving the poor or helping the homeless or even evangelizing in some settings, that those are the ones who are really supposed to do mission and be about the things that Jesus is about in the world. But if we're reading verse 16 correctly, we can't draw that type of distinction. That type of dichotomy just crumbles if we're reading verse 16 correctly. He's saying, look, you did not choose me. I chose you, and I appointed you to go and produce fruit. I appointed you to produce fruit that lasts. What that means is, is that if you are a disciple of Jesus, if you are a Christian, Jesus intends for you to produce fruit. He wants you to influence others in light of the gospel for the glory of God. This means that you have a role to play. And, and the good news about Christianity is that this isn't something you are to go off and do by yourself. That's why when we talk about following Jesus, we don't talk about, well, okay, I've got my relationship with Jesus. It's me and Jesus. We say, no, it's not about me and Jesus. It's about we and Jesus. Because we're, we're supposed to help each other out and encourage each other to live on mission, to encourage each other to produce fruit, to encourage one another to engage and to extend gospel influence in all kinds of different ways and in all kinds of different directions. So in Ephesians chapter 4, when Paul is talking about the church, he says leaders, that is pastors, teachers, evangelists, they are given to the church not to do ministry for everybody, those leaders are given to the church to equip everybody to do the ministry. Ephesians chapter 4, leaders are given to the church to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. This means that each of you have a role to play. And we come to dis together to discover what that role is so that we can be a fruitful church. That we can be a fruitful people. Now when we think about this whole idea of an enduring purpose and mission, there's two extremes that we want to avoid. Because when churches talk about missions, sometimes we 
box ourselves into one of two categories. There are some churches who talk a whole lot about faithfulness. And they believe that their responsibility in all things is to remain faithful. And then there are other churches, they might not talk about faithfulness as much, but they talk about fruitfulness. They read verse 16 and say, okay, we're supposed to bear a lot of fruit. We're supposed to produce fruit that lasts. That means we've got to reach people. And if we have a lot of people, that's when we're fruitful. And so sometimes the temptation for churches is to put themselves in one of those two lanes. That I'm either going to be a faithful church or I'm going to be a fruitful church. And what happens is we develop a form of faithfulness or a form of fruitfulness that actually betrays what Jesus is talking about in verse 16. Here's what I mean by that. It is possible for you and I to have a form of faithfulness that doesn't produce any fruit. And when that happens, the question is, are we really being faithful? One example of this would be the older brother in Luke chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal sons. On the outside looking in, you would think that that older brother remained faithful. After all, he didn't take his share of the inheritance and go out to the far country and squander his property on reckless living. He didn't go a wayward direction like his little brother did. He stayed close to the things of his father. He stayed at his father's house. He was around his father's stuff. He was doing his father's work day in and day out. So on the outside looking in, you would think, okay, there's someone who is faithful. But when you dig into his heart, you discover that his faithfulness wasn't actually producing fruitfulness. Because in his heart, there was no love or compassion or concern being extended to his little brother. Instead, there was just bitterness and resentment and entitlement growing in his heart. So that when his younger brother did return and the father runs in his direction and lavishes him with grace and throws a party because his son has returned, the older brother who remained faithful, he's in the corner complaining and bickering, just bitterness and resentment, all this nasty stuff is coming out of him. On the outside, or looking at it from one angle, you might have thought he was faithful, but he had a form of faithfulness that wasn't producing fruitfulness. And I want us to think about how that's possible for churches today. It is possible for a church to remain faithful, to stay close to the things of God, to read their Bibles, to study their Bibles, to sing their songs, to go through the motions, but there's no heart, there's no concern, there's no attention giving to the younger brothers in our lives or the younger brothers in our city, those who are running as far from the things of God as possible. And we're, there's a tendency for churches to just kind of huddle up and be together, but not be together for anyone but themselves. And there's a form of faithfulness that isn't producing fruitfulness. And I would say that form of, faith, that form of faithfulness isn't actual faithfulness. And so that is one lane that we can run into, and that's one lane we need to be cautious of because we don't want to move in that direction. We don't want faithfulness without fruitfulness. But at the same time, there's a form of fruitfulness that can happen and that can be attained without any degree of faithfulness. It is possible to assemble a crowd. It is possible to assemble a lot of people to inspire a lot of people, to encourage a lot of people, to get a lot of people moving in the same direction about something. It is possible to, to do that. And on the outside looking in, you might think, okay, there's a fruitful church. They have thousands of people. 
But when you dig a little closer, when you kind of peel back some of the layers, okay, what accounts perhaps for their fruitfulness? Why are people gathering together? Why are they bonding together? And you begin to dig, it's possible that what's binding them together is something other than the gospel. What's binding them together is something other than the reality of Jesus. What's binding them together may be something other than abiding in Christ and Christ abiding in them. It's possible to attain a form of fruitfulness that is devoid of of faithfulness. And one way to think about this in the life of our church is that something we've said over and over and over again over the years is that we recognize that what we win people with is what we win them to. What we win people with is what we win them to. It is possible to win people, so to speak, with dynamic personalities. And we can leverage our personalities to assemble a crowd and to appear fruitful. But what happens, if that's what you're winning them with, that's what you're going to win them to, right? And so when that personality fades, when that personality is no longer around, what happens to the people? Is it fruit that lasts? And so we've got to think about this so that we don't win people with something that isn't lasting, personalities aren't lasting. You know what's lasting? Gospel character. What's lasting is gospel proclamation. So what we want to win people with isn't so much dynamic personalities. What we want to win people with is the fruit of the Spirit. It's gospel character because that's what lasts. What we win people with is what we win them to. You might look, think of it this way. It's possible to appear fruitful because you have slamming production. You have a worship service like this and you can do everything right. You have incredible music. You have dynamic speaking. You have all these types of things happening, smoke and lights and all this stuff happening in in the room at that time. And it is possible to attract a lot of people by way of your dynamic production. Now, I don't have any qualms with production. I really think we should do things well for God's glory, that we should seek excellence for edification's sake. And whatever's edifying and whatever reduces distractions so that people can focus, we, we want to go for it. We want to execute music well. We want to speak well. We want to do everything well. But if we're not careful, stylistic production and that type of thing on a Sunday like this that may be attractive to a lot of people and it may assemble a crowd... It is possible that that becomes the end rather than the means. And when you're winning people with stylistic productions or dynamic productions, then you're winning them to dynamic productions. And so once that happens, what do you have to maintain over the course of your church's life? Over the course of the long haul, you have to maintain what? Dynamic production. Because that's what you won them with, that's what you won them to, that's what you have to maintain. And what happens is over time, you may get tired Your group may get tired. Leadership may get tired. You may lose inspiration and may just find yourself going through the motions without without being driven and propped up by the fruit of the Holy Spirit that's working in your life and in your church. And so we want to think about how we as a church, what we win people with is what we win them to. And we may win people with dynamic production, but that's also what we may win them to. And And then we got to ask, well, is that the kind of fruit that lasts? Can that be sustained for a lifetime? Can that be sustained for the duration of of our lives and our existence together in this city? 
Well, on some level, yeah, but then on other levels, no. And so we wanna think about this so that we become a church that doesn't find herself choosing between faithfulness and fruitfulness. So that we don't just say our goal in the Hallows Church is to be found faithful. And we don't just say as the Hallows Church, our goal is to be fruitful and to reach lots of people. No, what we wanna say in our church is we wanna be faithful and fruitful. We want the type of faithfulness that leads to fruitfulness and we want that to come through the fruit of gospel character and the fruit of gospel influence. Meaning what people are drawn to is the reality of Christ at work in our lives and in our church. What people are drawn to is the clarity of Christ at work in our lives and in our church so that people can sense something authentic. They can sense something real because they're engaging people who are authentic. They are engaging people who are real. They're seeing real faith being exercised in a real God. They're seeing real obedience being given to the real Savior, not because that obedience is required, but because that obedience is descriptive of everyone who's walking in relationship with Jesus. And so we want, to be, we want to be a faithful and a fruitful church. That's our enduring purpose. That's why we assemble together. It's why we abide in Christ and Christ abides in us. It's why we want to be faithful to the scriptures and we want to be fruitful in our ministries. We want to reach people. But we recognize that what we win people with is what we win them to. And we want to reach people with the fruit of gospel character. And we want to win people with the fruit of gospel proclamation or gospel clarity. That's what we're going after. But if that's going to happen, Jesus brings in one last dynamic at the end of verse 16. Where essentially, if you want to be both faithful and fruitful, what is needed is this empowering promise that gives, Jesus gives at the end of the verse. Because Jesus moves from talking about grace and Jesus' choosing and calling of us and then he talks about the purpose of that, this, this enduring purpose and mission, but then he comes to this empowering promise and he says, look, if you're gonna be faithful and fruitful, I want you to know it's possible. But if you're gonna be faithful and fruitful, it's only gonna come to the degree in which you give yourself to prayer. The degree to which you leverage this gift of grace that God has given to you as his people in the world. So what does he say at the end of verse 16? At the end of verse 16, he goes on and says, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. He starts talking about prayer here. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. This is an empowering promise, and what happens here is we begin to see the relationship between prayer and empowerment, that there is no power apart from prayer. There is no faithfulness and fruitfulness apart from a consistent, steady prayer life coming from prayerful people. Now what I want to do right now is I want to give you some passages of scripture and I'm going to run through them fairly quick and I want you to write them down and I want you to think about them right now with me. But what I really want you to do is I want you to take these passages with you and sit with them this week. Sit with these passages because what I want to do is I want you to see the connection between prayer and mission that is all over the Bible. I'm not going to trace cover to cover but I'm going to give you quite a few all drawn from the New Testament where there we see a clear link, a clear connection between our prayers and the mission or the purpose that Jesus has given us to do. 
Here's one example. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. This is a passage where Paul's talking about spiritual warfare, and he's reminding us of the reality of spiritual warfare, and he's saying, hey, look, arrows are flying, lies are being launched at people, hearts are hurting, this is going down, therefore you need to pray at all times. And he draws up prayer in verse 18, pray at all times in the spirit with every prayer and request, and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. Then he goes, pray also for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For this, I'm an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might be bold enough to speak about it as I should, the connection between prayer and mission. Pray that when my mouth opens that the gospel comes out. Pray that I won't shrink back in fear when I'm being intimidated by the soldiers around me. Pray that it would come out boldly. Prayer and mission being linked together. Colossians chapter four, devote yourselves to prayer. Stay alert in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door to us for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains so that I may make make it known as I should. Act wisely toward outsiders, making the most of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you should answer each person. Prayer and mission being linked together. And I love that passage because he's talking about not only is he praying for opportunity to share the gospel, he's also praying for the relationships the church will have with those who are considered outsiders. And he's saying when you step into relationships with outsiders, be whimsical. Let your your speech be gracious. Let it be seasoned with salt. And so how does that happen? How how are you gracious in your interactions with outsiders? How How is your speech seasoned with flavor and salt? Well, There's a connection that comes from the prayers that are being prayed. You're asking, God, make me a gracious person. Help me know how to converse with people that that will help encourage them and point them to you. Help me do that. You're praying. You're asking for God to do that. Romans chapter 15. Now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, through our Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in fervent, fervent prayers to God on my behalf. Pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea, that my ministry in Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, and that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed together with you. Here, Paul's on mission and he's in trouble. So he's telling the church, look, pray for my rescue. Pray that I would be delivered from my circumstances, that I might rejoin you and encourage you and be refreshed by you. He's praying again for mission, Romans 15. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, in addition, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. What's he praying for there? He's saying, I want you to pray for multiplication, that the work that God has done in you, I want to see that same work done elsewhere. So pray that the word would spread rapidly. Pray that it would be heard by lots and lots of people. And pray that it wouldn't just be heard. Pray that it would be honored Pray that people would come to trust the word and believe the word, that would give their lives to the word. Let it be heard and let it be honored. That's what he's praying for. Then in Matthew chapter 9, verse 38, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. That's just before Jesus said, look, the harvest is plentiful, but laborers are few. There aren't a lot of people living on mission. There aren't a lot of disciples who hear verse 16 the way that it's intended to be heard. And so he says, when you're in those situations where disciples aren't living on mission, when they're not making much of Jesus, not only when they come together in church, but when they are scattering throughout the city in which they live and interacting with outsiders, if, if that's not happening, pray to the Lord of the harvest. 
Pray for him to send out more laborers. Pray for him to stir up more disciples to go and to be the people God has called them to be in the places of their work, in their places of their play, in the places where they learn, in the places that they live life. So he's saying, he's connecting again, prayer and mission over and over and over again. Even when the disciples, even when the disciples were asking Jesus to teach them how to pray, his response to them was a missional prayer. It was a prayer with purpose. He says, okay, well, when you pray, pray this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a missional prayer. That's a purposeful prayer. Pray that God would harmonize heaven and earth. Let that be the ordinary way you pray. So praying for mission, praying for the advancement of the kingdom, praying for gospel influence to expand is an ordinary way that we pray. It's not a way that we pray once and then move on to praying for other things. No, Jesus is saying embed this into your prayer life. Prayer and mission go hand in hand. Prayer empowers the mission of the church. So if you want to be a powerful church, you have to be a prayerful church. If you're content in being a powerless church, be a prayerless church. But if we want to see God move, if we want to see God do things that only God can do, then we must give ourselves to the reality of prayer. We must receive prayer as a gift and utilize prayer as fuel for the mission of God. John Piper was, wrote a book called Desiring God, and in it he has a whole chapter on prayer. And it's a great chapter on prayer, but there's a section where he's actually meditating on John 15, 16. And after meditating upon John 15, 16, he, he began to, he, he talks about it, he illustrates it in words that I find very helpful and impressionable. So I'm gonna share what he wrote to you, wrote, what he wrote about this verse and the dynamic of prayer and mission and how the two go hand in hand. This is what John Piper writes. <laughs> writes. He said, it is as though the field commander, that is Jesus, called in the troops, that is his disciples, and gave them a crucial mission to go and bear fruit. And so he handed each of them a personal transmitter coded to the frequency of the general's headquarters. And he said to them, the general has a mission for you. He aims to see it accomplished, and to that end, he has authorized me to give each of you personal access to him through these transmitters. If you stay true to his mission and seek his victory first, he will always be as close as your transmitter to give tactical advice and to send in air cover when you need it. It's a wonderful description. Prayer is a transmitter that has been given to us by Jesus. Our faith in Jesus has authorized us to talk to God and talk to God not simply as our creator but to talk to God as our father who has a heart for all the peoples on the planet. And so we want to use this transmitter, we want to use this grace, recognizing that air cover is required if we're going to continue on in this thing called faith. If we're going to continue serving in a city like Seattle, we're going to need air cover, we're going to need prayers to cover and to saturate everything that we are doing. I mean, the need for air cover in our city should be readily apparent for every person in this room. It should be clear to everyone here that God, the enemy's arrows are falling. Temptations are looming. Lies are lurking. Hearts are hurting. Faith is flaking. I can't tell you the number of people I've talked to who 
or walking away from the faith or considering walking away from the faith. It's happening. It's the zeitgeist of our city right now. So air cover is needed. It's always been needed, but I think the Lord is pulling back the veil and exposing us to just how twisted and just how tough the situation actually is so that we might be drawn into prayer like never before. So that we would serve the cities of Seattle in a way perhaps that the city's never been served before, meaning that prayer would be a primary mission of our church. Or better yet, prayer would be a primary ministry of our church that we would come together and provide air cover for one another, that we would come together and provide air cover for those that we love, that we would come together and provide air cover for those who are struggling and hurting and flaking and being deceived by this, that, or the other, that we would come together and combat those dynamics with the gift of prayer. Elsewhere, John Piper says that, you know, prayer is like a wartime walkie-talkie, that it's used when you realize that you're in the midst of a war. If you don't realize that life is war, you're not gonna use prayer like a wartime walkie-talkie. Instead, you're going to use prayer more like a domestic intercom. Instead of appealing to the general and asking him to send more troops and to send air cover, you're going to appeal to a butler of sorts and ask for another pillow to be placed on your bed. Your prayers are going to become very small if you think prayer is to be used like a domestic intercom. But when we realize that prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie, then we're gonna utilize it. We're gonna give ourselves to it. We're gonna become a prayerful, prayerful church. If we wanna bear fruit, if we wanna be both faithful and fruitful in our lives, in our church, and in the city of Seattle, then prayer can't be something that's viewed as incidental. Prayer must be viewed as essential. And when we view prayer as essential, what are we gonna do? We're not gonna just talk about prayer. We're gonna actually pray. And we're going to intercede for one another. We're going to intercede for the city. We're going to pray for fruit to come, for fruit to bloom. We're going to see the connection between prayer and mission. And so what I want to do right now is just kind of end this message a little differently than I've ended in the past. And and basically, I just want to call you to take some time to pray. I want to invite you to take a few moments to pray for the mission of the church, to pray for fruit to come, And pray for fruit that lasts. Pray that what we win people with is what we win people to. So pray that the gospel would be heralded in our lives, not just on Sundays, but on Mondays and Saturdays. Pray that we would share the gospel. Pray that we would show the gospel. Pray that we would speak the gospel. Pray that we would embody the gospel in our interactions with people who do not yet know the love of the Savior. Those who do not yet know that they are wanted by God. And you and I are the the instrument designed by God to bring them into that reality, to communicate those truths. And so we're going to pray in that direction. I'm going to invite you just to take a few moments. And you can group up if you want to. You can pray with your friends. You can pray with your family. You can pray on your own, whatever the case may be. We're just going to turn this time over, and we're just going to pray for the mission of the church. We're going to ask God to make us fruitful. We're going to ask God to give us fruit that lasts. And so we're going to take a few moments to pray in that direction and And then after that, when we're also going to open up the table. So after you spend some time praying, the table is going to be open for you to go and partake of the Lord's Supper, being reminded of why you have the transmitter that is prayer. How has Jesus given you access to God the Father so that you can pray in these ways? Well, he was crucified and he was risen. 
So you're going to go to the table with the spirit of gratitude, thanking him for doing that for you. You're going to take the bread that reminds you of his body given. You're going to dip it in the cup, reminding you of the blood of Christ shed for your forgiveness. That this is how you have access to God. This is why we can pray and we can pray constantly. And so if you would, just bow your heads and close your eyes. I'm going to voice one prayer for us and then I'm going to let you guys pray for a few moments and, and then the table will be open for you to go there. Hi. Heavenly Father, hallowed be your name. I ask for your kingdom to come and for your will to be done in Seattle as it is in heaven. I'm asking God for you to give us your Holy Spirit in fullness so that we might be filled with the Holy Spirit to to speak the gospel, to embody the gospel. I ask you, God, to cause our hearts to be stirred with compassion for the people around us who are not yet aware of the love that you have for them. And would you help us to trust you in moving towards them so that we would engage people, that we would speak your name and introduce them to your reality. But God, I recognize that all of our efforts are futile if your spirit is not empowering, if your spirit is not energizing, if your spirit is not doing. And so God, would you give us your spirit to be the disciples you have called us to be and to engage the mission you've called us to engage. Help us to become a fruitful church for your glory in the city of Seattle. I pray for your namesake for you to do this. I pray for your namesake that people would come to know the love of Christ. I pray for your namesake that we would be a fruitful people and a fruitful church. In Christ's name.